right, here we go. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Hello, and welcome to the Mojo Record Club. Andrew Mail's having a well-deserved holiday this week, so it's entrusted me, John Mulvey, to look after the podcast. The principle's the same, though. The Mojo Record Club remains a place where music lovers, music makers and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, lost gems and brand new revelations. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome the drive-by truckers to the club in the shape of their founding members, Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood. Hey, good to see you. Hello. Hey, good to see you too. For nearly 30 years now, Patterson and Mike have been fronting the drive-by truckers a band who've consistently and thrillingly challenged our understanding of the American South and Southern rock and American rock altogether. In their journey from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, via Athens, Georgia, they've made a load of great records. But maybe we should start today with a blast from their 2004 album, The Dirty South, which is being reissued this month as The Complete Dirty South, which is to say it's been expanded in a way that the band always wanted it to be. This is the torrent of memories, foreboding and mass guitars, as played by Patterson, Mike and Jason Isbell, that opens the album. The Drive-By Truckers and Where the Devil Don't Stay, written by Mike Cooley and released by New West Records. My daddy played poker in the woods, they say Back in his younger days Prohibition was a talk But the rich folks walked To the woods where my daddy stayed Jugs and jars Some shiners These old boys here they ain't miners They came from the 29ers that didn't take a hole In the ground to put the bottom in their face How did it feel Revisiting the Dirty South two decades on? I'm I've enjoyed it. Uh, it, It's funny because at the time we were making it, it was, uh, there was so much stuff going on in the band or around the band on the periphery that, that was kind of unpleasant to deal with that it it ended up kind of at the time, leaving a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth about the actual album and uh, getting to go back without all of the, you know, bullshit and, uh, and, you know, and, and being actually, you know, asked to do the record, to make the record like we had originally kind of intended it to be mm-hmm. was, was enjoyable. And uh, I'm really, you know, proud of how well it's held up. And, uh, you know, I think the songs that were left off of the sequence definitely add to it and kind of make it more a more cohesive whole. And, um You know, and then just as we were putting it all together with all the artwork and everything and uh, doing the packaging, which, you know, in a really beautiful way, we lost our our beloved friend, Wes Freed, that's done the artwork for the truckers since 2001 and uh, from Southern Rock Opera forward. And uh, so, you know, in the midst of kind of grieving the loss of Wes, I was kind of immersed in all of his beautiful art because he did some of his greatest artwork for that record. And uh, so it was really kind of beautiful, you know, really getting to present it in a way, you know, even kind of beyond what was originally intended. It's not that much of an expansion, is it? How many, is it three or four tracks? It's like three songs, I think, three more songs. But, But they kind of, 
you know, there's kind of almost like two trains of thought in the released record that, and the three songs missing kind of, kind of tie them together, at least in my head. And, you know, whether anybody else sees that or not, I don't, I don't even care, you know, but, uh, but that's, that's the way, that's the way I thought of it anyway. And, uh, uh, so it, 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 it makes it good. And then, you know, we were, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm very happy with how it all came about now. Yeah. I mean, there's a prosaic thing to say as well, I think, which is that they're just simply great songs as well. And whether, whether, whether that narrative arc or whatever that you can see is, is, you know, completed by them is, isn't it's a simpler thing in some ways in that like those songs should be in public domain and they work great within the record without it being quite so complex i think yeah yeah you know there was like there's like a personal thread that runs through the record and then there was kind of a political thread and a song like Goodsfield road really kind of ties the two things together because of the you know because it's it's about you know the the crime that is talked about in that song, it's, it's dealt with from a very personal level, you know, of a, of a father trying to figure out how to support his family and, uh, you know, and, and kind of by any means necessary. And, uh, which in the case of that song involved him taking a contract out on himself so that there would be insurance money when he was gone for the kids. And, uh, and which is a true story. And um, that happened in my hometown. And that was actually one of the first things I wrote for the record. And uh, then it ended up, you know, being dropped from the sequence because the record was considered at the time to be running too long and all of that. And uh, a song like TVA, you know, yeah. Jason, which is, I think, a, one of my favorite Jason Isbell songs. And uh, and it really ties the threads together really well, too. And uh, so, you know, I'm real happy. And and likewise, the Great Car Dealer War was another one of the first things I wrote for it that got left off. And and that's also based on a true story, or at least the at least the events in it are true. I can't say the way it tells it is true. But, so, in uh, case people haven't heard this, this is about a spate of firebombings of car dealerships in yeah, in, was it in Muscle Shoals, yeah, yep, in the Muscle Shoals yeah. area, and yeah. like right around 1980, and. Uh, and in, a, in about a year's time, almost every car dealership in my hometown burned down one twice. And uh, uh, they rebuilt it and then it burned down again. And then they rebuilt it a second time. And then the proprietor was murdered in his showroom uh, over a, uh, a uh, an overcharge of uh repair which i don't think was actually very it's, it, it's but, the uh, stuff of a of a dark comedy that would never get made because no it would it would be yeah. too far-fetched even for a dark comedy <laughs> yeah it, but it's right for it, it's right for parody yeah truly i mean i suppose that's one of the things that when when you are putting these stories together for an album like the dirty south or i mean i know you've moved on in to some degree in more recent albums from writing more about America in general rather than about the South right. specifically. But when you were doing those records that were so rooted in the South and in your experience in, you know, that area of Alabama and that kind of thing, um, did you ever worry about the fact that some of these stories seemed so far fetched that although you were writing about the South with great nuance and consideration, that that element of, the appearance of parody, as you just 
mentioned, Mike, <laughs> was was kind of playing into enemy hands. Yeah, in a way. is there really any such thing as parody? I don't. <laughs> oh. I mean, truly. Yeah. yeah. Watch the news. I mean, you get this <laughs> much news from the from the late night comedy shows that talk about the news is from the actual news anymore, and in some cases, probably even. Better. Coverage, I, I would actually. Kind of I, I, I think I would prefer people think for people to think I just made it up. That would make me a lot more creative <laughs> than I actually am. You know. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me. It's Mike Cooley from Drive By Truckers. One of the things I wanted to talk about because when you you recorded this record back in Muscle Shoals, didn't you? Uh, the Dirty South, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we. we yeah. But at the t- but I guess you've been living in in Athens for the best part of a decade by then. I had uh, I'd been there almost exactly a decade yeah. by then, and you know Cooley's never lived in Athens. That's uh, oh he, wow! He, I'm sorry. I always assumed that you no, were nobody knows that. That's while. okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I hope Stephen Doisner doesn't listen to this because I have read his book, so I should have remembered <laughs> that. But uh, he's probably forgotten by now. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> But um, I think one of the things that interests me, and and this I guess will will lead us into the first record that you've chosen to play for us on this um, on this podcast, so the the record you've chosen, Patson, which I won't reveal just yet, is about how um, one of the things that I think confounds a lot of us as music fans is the idea of Muscle Shoals not having that much of a music scene, right. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's it is confounding, and because uh, to anyone who just knows about Muscle Shoals and the musical legacy of that, you would just have assumed that you know it was like this hotbed with like you know cool clubs and great yeah, like music, a little Austin or something know, six nights a week, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, and it it was the a polar opposite of that there was it was a dry county there was no venue there was no when we were growing up it's not a dry county anymore but uh, i mean does people in england even know what a dry county no. is i mean it's you know uh we're not allowed to sell horrible hunch it means exactly what it sounds allowed to sell beer yeah and uh and, you know, that doesn't mean there wasn't beer. There was lots of beer. There was, you know, there was the state line, which was about 15 miles away, and they sold beer, and they had honky-tonks that were very literally honky-tonks. And, yeah. uh, and uh, there was uh, bootleggers, and, and which was a teenager that liked to drink was awesome because they didn't give a they didn't give a shit, you know, that I looked 13 when I was 16. They'd sell me whatever. But uh, yeah. so... Uh, but there was no live music scene, and I think the I think the scene that was there, this recording scene, was because those guys, you know, my dad's generation, they were bored, and so they were jamming in their basements, and and you know, someone bought a recorder and they started making records in you know this little building. And one of those records ended up being when a man loves a woman and, you know, and, <laughs> and Arthur Alexander's you better move on. And all of a sudden, you know, Jerry Wexler from Atlantic records started bringing people like Wilson Pickett and Aretha Franklin and people like that to town. And, uh, 
it became this, you know, for 25 years, this hotbed of, of amazing records being made there. And during most of that time, you know, the Rolling Stones came to town, yeah, yeah. recorded Brown Sugar and, and, you know, Wild Horses. And, and, you know, it was a dry county. They could not go to a bar and have a beer, you know. Uh, there was beer at the studio, obviously, and there was whatever the Rolling Stones wanted there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, you know, it was this kind of underground and it was kind of like a secret society. Nobody knew about it. The locals didn't yeah, know and they, they didn't want the locals to know because they would shut them down. It's been almost you know? 20 years since the news reached Muscle Shoals about Muscle Shoals. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I should I should say, in case um, some of our listeners don't know, um, Patson's father is David Hood, who is one of the original Swampers. That's right, isn't it? Right. Who played a lot, a lot of those records that came out of Muscle Shoals. Yeah, and, you know, 10 years ago, they made the movie about it. And by that time, the locals had kind of become aware. But to some extent, a lot of the locals realized what had happened there when they saw the movie. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the rest of the world kind of found out more about it from the movie too, which has been a really successful documentary. Yeah. But I guess the reason why I was leading in this way was, was to talk about Athens and how, when you moved to Athens, there was quite a different kind of music scene. And one of the bands who I imagine was a critical part of that scene were the Glans, whose second album from 2000 is the, is the precious record that you've chosen to talk to us about today. Is that right? It is. You know, Athens was the opposite. There was, when I moved there in the 90s, there were literally 350 bands in that town. And that's a town with like 100,000 people. Yeah. So almost every person you would meet, you know, if you went to a restaurant, the people cooking your food and bringing it to you and everything else, they were all in bands. And, uh, you know, it's a college town, but, but the music scene had become its own thing there. And it, you know, it was really diverse and really cool. And, you know, of course, REM being the super famous band that came out of there and B-52s, widespread panic and a number of other bands that, you know, had some level of success. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the glands weren't famous or successful necessarily, but they were beloved. But people, you know, they didn't really tour a lot. So a lot of people didn't know about them outside of Athens. But at any given time, if you were to ask a group of Athens musical types what their favorite record that ever came out of Athens was, many of them would tell you that record, particularly the second one, although I think all three of their records are very beloved. Yeah, I think, um, let, let me just try and explain a little bit of what it sounds like or what I think it sounds like. I have to say I've never, um, I must confess, I've never come across them before and sort of shame to say it because it's it's uh, very much my kind of thing. It's It fits, um, there's a little bit of pavement to it, but there's something very classical about what they're doing on this record as well. There's a real sort of... Uh, 60s kind of chamber pop precision to it while still being kind of slightly bent out of shape it's quite kinksy in some ways and lovely harmonies on a bunch of tracks and the southern band it reminds me of most most really from that period is the grifters out of memphis oh yeah in some ways we're doing 
in in some kind of similar thing to this, but it's maybe it's maybe poppier and a bit more accessible than those Grifters records. It's 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 a hard one to understand why more of us don't know about it. Really, I guess. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it's because well, they were on Capricorn, which was a death yeah. sentence because nobody they I mean they didn't do a very good job you know they did a great job in the 60s with the almond brothers maybe but the the 90s capricorn they didn't know what to do with it they if that around that period in time they signed a ton of athens bands and put out their record and nobody heard them but uh but there was a point in time in the year 2000 then if you were walking down, you know, Athens music scene at that time was all downtown and all right. the clubs were like in a, you know, a six block area. And if you'd be walking downtown, you might hear three different gland songs playing in three different places you walk past, you know, they'd be like, it, it was, it was ubiquitous. It was like, it was like the way I imagined in the sixties when the Beatles were the Beatles just on a very tiny little dot, you know, of that. It's like, it was so beloved in that town that everybody was playing it and everybody was listening to it, but you go outside the city limits and no one had ever heard of it. And, uh, you know, and Ross, who was the leader of the band, who I think was, he was a record store guy. He was like the, he was like the super grumpy prototypical you know in the simpsons or something record store guy you'd go in his store and he'd growl at you if he didn't like the record you brought up and he was just that guy you know and you'd see him at shows you know hey ross what do you think about this band eh. <laughs> you know he didn't like anything and 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 he was always working on this project that no one heard and he would go in late at night and record and like the handful of people who worked with him you know would would like talk in hushed tones about this thing he was doing but no one heard it and kind of people didn't really even believe it existed until the, until the first record came out and then everybody kind of loved it and then the second record a couple of years later when it came out i mean it just was like i mean it was like literally like the beatles in this tiny little dot of a town and uh and to me, their music is like everything. It's like if you took all these elements of music from, you know, AM radio we grew up in and then bands in Athens and put it in a blender and then just that was just it. It, it, it had all these elements of all this stuff and yet in ways put together in ways that you'd never think of. You know, one of my favorite songs was built around a a sample of the piano part from Oh What a Night, December 63 by the Four Seasons. That dun, 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 you know, that part. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Capricorn wouldn't pay for the, for the sample to be used, so he had to go in the studio and replicate something that fit to put on the record, and, uh, and which is minutely different but uh but it just different enough to where they could put it on there and that's one of my favorite songs you know so there's all these things that don't seem like they'd go together you know the, you know four seasons with the kinks you know and yeah. all this stuff that it somehow worked yeah so what song is that let's i can see my house from here we'll play a bit of that one this is i can see my house from here 
It's written by Ross Shapiro, performed by The Glands, and it was released in 2000 on Capricorn Records. hear that piano line that, that Patterson was talking about but and it, it, it sounds quite phased and quite sort of slightly distorted in a very kind of hazy disorienting way it's a it's a really cool track I think yeah that's a good one and uh, living was easy is a great one which is almost like an Athens theme song because at that time it was an easy place to live rent was cheap and you know you could play in your band and and not have to really worry about you know you'd work a shit job and not worry about it and you, those it's not like that anymore but it <laughs> right. was like that then right so how did you feel about them, Mike? Were you, were you aware of them much? I guess when you were going down to see Patterson in... Um, That's Athens still the only uh, only place I've heard them. You know, uh, I, I've never yeah. heard them. Uh, they, they've never popped up on any streaming service that I've, that I've used. Um, I, you know, yeah. I, it's, it's the greatest kept secret. <laughs> it, it, it is phenomenal. It, it's, it it's is. everything. It's everything you both said about it. It's, 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 it's the most phenomenal record you've never heard. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, when Ross uh, died, they, uh, uh, when Ross died, David Barbie, who, who produces our records, uh, was friends with Ross and, and he basically got Ross's permission on his deathbed to track down all of that stuff and, see that it gets released because at that time everything was out of print you couldn't find any of it the third album had never even come out or even been completed and and he signed off on barbie he trusted barbie enough to know that he would supervise making sure that it would all be done in a way that wouldn't have made him cringe and uh and so barbie tracked down all the master tapes and put together and uh, found a record deal for it and uh, made sure that, you know, any money it made went to Ross's family and to the other members, you know, the surviving members. And um, they put out, New West put out like a three record box set, which is, uh, I think actually called, you can see my house from here. And, uh, and it's incredible. And uh, so that came out in like, 2018 maybe about mm-hmm. a year and a half after ross passed away i think um one th- one thing that i always find interesting about the way american bands develop and obviously it never quite worked out for the glands but maybe it's salient to the way that the chuckers have evolved over the first few years is that one perspective that we have from the uk is that if you're a half decent band you transcend your hometown extremely quickly in the UK because it's just not big enough to be able right. to sustain those those lively local scenes that even a city like right. uh, as small as Athens can do. Sorry, um, 
But in America, it feels like you can fly under the radar for a few years and really kind of develop your skills. So certainly back in the day a little bit. Anyway, I don't quite know how it is now, but but certainly in the 90s, bands could get three albums under their belt before they were playing in New York or LA or actually being noticed. And they could really get to a place where all the pressure wasn't on that debut album in a way like it often was for, for British bands. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. It may not be that way as much now because no. of the internet. You know, exactly. Yeah, that's everything. Th- yeah, that now. that was. Uh, <laughs> but Let me get my coffee. Pre-internet, post-internet. That's <laughs> that's our two worlds. But yeah, and a lot of those places yeah. like Athens and and even Austin, farther back, uh, they were places that were pretty cheap to live. You know. And yeah. they're not anymore, yeah. and nothing's really taken the place of that. Actually, Muscle Shoals is one of the places I could I kind of see as maybe becoming one of those places if it, if it's not already. It because it, uh, it's still fairly cheap to live I there. Agree. There's a lot of talent, uh, a lot of support. Yeah. And you're in Birmingham. Yeah, yeah Birmingham, here in Birmingham to some is, degree it, too, because Birmingham's not as expensive as no. Athens, or certainly not anything like Austin. And and Birmingham's a hotbed of like there's a lot of music, a lot of really good bands. There's some really great venues now. You know, Birmingham is a, a cool. Birmingham, Alabama is a, a, a to me the most underrated city in America. Right, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I I think I passed through it once a few years ago. I was da- I was down there interviewing the Alabama show. Okay, yeah. Okay. When they were around there, and when they were all still living in town, and when they were still a band, I guess. And I remember I had exactly the same conversation about Muscle Shoals with them, because I guess it's what, right. they come from about 40 or 50 miles away from Muscle Shoals. Something like yeah, that, yeah. Something like Athens, that. Alabama. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and, it, and it was like, nope, nothing there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, yeah. uh, and, be, and being younger, you know, because they're all in, the, I guess they're in their 30s, maybe early 40s now, they you know, they missed it when it was happening and no one knew about right. it. And so it's kind of, yeah. they, ju- they yeah. just owned the, owned the records and had no idea they'd been made down the road. Yeah. You know, Cooley and I came of age just as all of that came crashing down because we're, you know, of course we're older, but we, uh, you know, we really came of age in the early 80s and, uh, and you know, started playing together in the mid 80s. And that's right when all the studios were going under and closing and a lot of the musicians moved off to L.A. or Nashville. Uh, my dad being one of the hardcore holdouts that refused to leave and he'll, he'll never leave. And uh, so he, uh, you know, so it was just but it was lean. I mean, there was nothing happening there. And uh uh, and it was, you know, kind of a kind of a sad time. Didn't they? Didn't your dad and the other Swampers break off from Muscle Shoals and start their own place at some point in the seventies? Was that? Well, they they had a they left Fame Studios in '69 and started Muscle Shoals Sound. Oh, as early and, as that! Uh, wow. Okay. And they and they did that until the mid '80s, and they uh, sold Muscle Shoals Sound to a company called Malico that made. Oh yeah, the blues, like, blues. labels. Yeah. yeah blues and gospel label out of Mississippi and uh and three of them my dad and two of his partners stayed on at the building and kind of ran the studio sort of uh you know under that umbrella and then the other partner Barry Beckett moved to Nashville and became like a mega mega star producer and uh 
he he made the money, and the other three just kind of stayed there and you know did the best they could. But it was it was a tough time. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Patterson Hood with Drive By Truckers. I'm going to move on to um, Mike's record now because I think it's interesting talking to you both about growing up in in that area and the soul music in the area. And and Mike, you've chosen a, a kind of a soul record from the 70s. <laughs> yeah, that a kind is, of, yeah. It's kind, yeah. kind of the opposite, I would say, of of the music that was coming out of Muscle Shoals. In oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> do you want to introduce? Do you want to introduce? Well, uh, I, I, anyone who's familiar knows I, I, I like Holland Oats. You know, it, it's just it's not a joke. I, uh, even the even the big hits, even the really no, it's not even joke. the really pop stuff that they're <laughs> no, most known for from the early '80s. But I came across uh, this record of theirs called War Babies um, several years ago, and I, I didn't really listen to it much. <laughs> It was back during that period before everybody started releasing records on vinyl again, and you could go into a thrift store, uh, record store, anything, and you could buy like pretty good vinyl uh, for pocket change, you know. So I'd just buy stuff yeah. that I was, you know, even remotely curious about, and I already liked Hall & Oates, so I bought several of, of theirs, and I, I listened to it. I thought, that is weird not at all what you associate them with, you know, a little bit here or there. There's a little bit of blue eyed soul splashes here and there. Uh, but, uh, it's, it, it, it was just so odd. And, uh, th- then I, I would come back to it every now and then in the last couple of years, I, I like started listening to it again. It was just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we all have it. yeah. War babies. It's like, you know, all this, the, the, it's awkward. I mean, the, the cover is like the, you know, it's got all, you know, Cold War era imagery all over it. Uh, uh, but uh, then I, I'd, I'd listened to it for a while. I'd, That's awesome. I'd even noticed, uh, you know, that it sounded a lot like Todd Rundgren. And then I actually turned yeah. it over and said, oh, okay. Um, it, it was, uh, he, he produced it. So there if is. you're the kind of person who may not uh, want to give Hall & Oates the time of day um, because of how pop they were but you kind of give todd run gonna pass for basically the same thing uh you might like this <laughs> it's got a lot of prog rock a lot should... of art rock a lot of uh it's just it's kind of all over the place and and you know so uh, unlike the glens i went with one of the most famous artists of all time and a, <laughs> a record you've never heard of exactly so it's a let me fill a bit in. It's the third album by yeah, Hall and yeah. Oates. It came out in 1974. There were a couple of records that weren't massively successful that came out before right. it, but I, uh, but as far as I can understand it, they were much closer to the sort of soul pop model, the white boy soul model that uh, they're better known for. Because she's gone is on one of those. Yeah, right. I think she's gone right. was on yeah. was on a band of luncheonette, and then but That's became right, a, yeah. a hit and later in '76. Oh, after yeah, Sarah right. Smile, yeah, yeah. But War Babies kind of puts that soul pop through. It rundgrenizes it. Oh, totally, totally yeah, it, right, basically. yeah. It, it it puts it through this extremely warped, synthetic, really yeah. rather abrasive. Filter oh, sure. A lot of the you time, know, doesn't it? Rundgren will say that he 
a lot of his singing style came from emulating, of course, you know, Hall and Oates and Rundgren are all from Philly. And yeah. he would say that Daryl Hall was a huge influence on his singing. And, uh, and if you listen to like the, you know, something, anything era Rundgren, the, the poppier stuff, you can you really can hear tell, yeah. the link to where, yeah, and yeah. That, War and, Babies uh, so came, came, it, it was right on the heels of something, anything. And so, you know, yeah. some of the, uh, some of War Baby sounds very much like some of the more rock and roll stuff on something, anything. And Rundgren's pl playing some really hot guitar on on this record, you know. It's sure. just, and uh, I came across one review that uh, said Diamond Dogs, Bowie's Diamond Dogs, had been a kind of an influence. Right. And I can totally hear that. The fuzzy, scratchy guitar, the, you know, and I, I love, I love fuzzy, scratchy. It, it's quite glam, definitely. Suze, Suze, our producer, actually mentioned the Rocky Horror Show. Yeah, about oh, it it's, a little yeah, bit it's, as it's, well. Yeah, yeah, rock and roll show tune. It's all, it's all there. <laughs> but, but it's funny. It's funny how you say that um, Daryl Hall's singing influenced Rundgren because it's almost like he gets his revenge by, by, by. Um, by rebuilding Daryl Hall in his own image on this record, <laughs> sure. because because it, it's so kind of um, smashed up. I mean, well, Hall and Oates had a. I mean, they did have a prog influence at various, even if it's subtle in the background. I mean, you know, the first Hall solo record was produced by Robert Fripp, and yeah. uh, which is a great record on the podcast and, uh, before you guys, Robert Fripp. In fact, him and Toya did the last oh, episode wow. with us. Wow. Damn, you know he produced that Roach's record, one of my favorite records. Well, yeah, I mean a, a, a lot of the a lot of the deeper cuts on their really pop records are are, are similar to you know there's a lot of Steely Dan, a lot of the same kind of things that, that right. you hear, you know. So they're prog rock, jazz. They've all they've kind of been into that, and there's a few records that go into almost an Americana uh, country country soul folk direction. They do that really well. John Oates' solo stuff is 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 particularly yeah. very American. Yeah, very, very acoustic. And, uh, so. I have to admit that when I was listening to the record, because I'd never come across it before, I was thinking that maybe uh, I love Steely Dan, and I was thinking maybe this is what people who don't like Steely Dan th hear when they're listening to yeah. Steely Dan. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of um, but let, let's play a track from it. So, what track would you like to play? Mark? Oh gosh, I would go. I, I guess the last one, Johnny Gore and the Sea Eaters. Awesome. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that? Not, I mean, I, we, I, we should talk about I, it. I can tell you almost nothing about it. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, this is basically a homework assignment for me. I, I, I know more about this record since 10 o'clock this morning than I've ever known. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is Johnny Gore and the Sea Eaters. By Hall and Oates, written by Hall and Oates, released on Atlantic Records in 1974. Howled onto your hats. It's pretty, it's pretty far out. This one, it's uh, it's kind of the start of the rock opera or the end of the rock opera, I suppose. It's the last song on the album, and listen out, I guess, as well for Todd playing that pretty screechy guitar on it as well. It's pretty wild. <laughs>
so I guess I thought when you chose this record that it might have been a record that had some, you know, huge formative influence on you growing up, but it, evidently that wasn't the case at all. No, no not at all. Oh. <laughs> we, we, we were going with something, uh, we, we, we were going with a hidden gem, and I don't know if it's a yeah. gem, but it's hidden. Yeah, it's funny if you, the five members of the truckers, we all have very diverse taste, but it, it but there's a few areas where it, it all converges. And one of those is Hall and Oates. Every single Amazing. member of the band is a huge Hall and Oates fan. And, uh, and, and I think you could even include at least most of the former members. I, I know, I know Jason's a big Hall and Oates fan. Now, I think most and, everybody uh, has an appreciation. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, they they get more credit now than they did for a long time. But there was a, a period, you know, 20 years ago when people would ask us about what we, you know, what are you, what are you listening to? And we would say that we, you know, what do you play in the van or whatever? And we were like, well, we, you know, we listen to some Holland Oaks. Yeah. And they'd think we were kidding. And we weren't. I mean, but, I, uh, I understand, you know, if you, well, if you were around in the early 80s, it was, you know, it, it you did it was played to death it was huge it was everywhere yeah. you know i i can understand anybody you know with the, the same thing happened with phil collins a few years later you know it's like my god if i right. hear phil collins one more time <laughs> yeah, it, yeah for sure maybe maybe one of the things is i suppose for better or worse people associate your own music with what i guess i'd call signifiers of authenticity Oh sure, the, sure. The, the, uh, and and Hall and Oates, maybe authenticity isn't the first thing that springs to mind with those you know expansive glossy eighties pop productions. Sure, yeah, so it's but a, they were very it, authentic it, about their glossiness. Yeah, they, they were, were authentically <laughs> yeah. glossy. You know, yeah. And, well, maybe that maybe that was the true authenticity of the nineteen eighties. I guess, but yeah, yeah. I'll guarantee that uh, Ross from the Glands was how to give equal time hold their record up too uh i guarantee ross from the glands loved some hollow notes uh, i i would i would i feel safe in saying that <laughs> <laughs> you don't think you would have shouted at people in the record store if they turned up with war babies yeah i think i think that would have probably been deemed okay uh, <laughs> <laughs> but besides, besides all the notes you're both todd fans as well i take it I'm a I'm a huge huge fan of of at least some of his records. Uh, I mean, something <laughs> yeah. anything is probably my all time favorite record, and and many days I'd say Hello It's Me is my favorite song. I tend to like the Todd Rundgren records that Todd hates, and uh, and because uh, he always never fails to badmouth something anything and i'm always like god it's so great you know it's like i'd way rather listen to that than his more you know wizard of true star stuff oh sure but, uh but you know but this i mean one of the things about this war babies record that i noticed was that he just as far as i can understand it he just formed utopia yeah so right. and utopia were the backing band on this record is that right yeah and yeah the rhythm section at least it's the rhythm section from utopia so so they're moving quite aggressively away or he's moving quite aggressively away from the something anything sound by the by the virtue of oh, who yeah. he's working with at that point i guess 
Yeah, he's saying he he's moving away from his Carol King period. I was like, like what's, what's wrong, wrong with, with the Carol King, King period? period? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what? I, I, I'd love to have like a week of that. <laughs> yes, yes. One song. I want one. 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 I want to write one Carol King song. <laughs> I tell I tell you another thing that it reminds me of in a weird way as well, and uh, maybe it's the Todd uh, um, association is Sparks. Yeah. I see that, totally. which I don't. I don't think I would ever have imagined that a, a Hall and Oates record would have sounded remotely like Sparks, but it, it <laughs> kind of does. It's it beca- because it's so it's it's so vigorously self conscious in, right. in, in the way that in the way that it kind of flaunts its complexities. Yeah, which is a massive Todd thing, isn't it? It's like I always think with Todd Rundgren records that. Uh, and something anything isn't necessarily the case, and that, maybe that's why that's one of my favourites as well. But yeah. it, it's like he thinks if he sticks on a melodic idea for longer than thirty seconds, then he's basically betraying his art, and so he always has to keep moving away from it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I think we, I think we're cool. probably about done, aren't we? Thank, thanks, thanks. Thank some amazing pair of records to listen to, and uh, well, enjoy. A few people will discover it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. It's been brilliant coming, and good luck with the complete Dirty South reissue. Have you got another? Ra- are you in the studio at the moment? It must be about time. Oh no, no it's only last year that the last one. Yeah, came we out, we put it? out Welcome to Club Thirteen a year ago this past weekend. That's and, right. Uh, yeah, and uh, we will. Um, one of these days, we'll make another one. <laughs> and I'm going to Dollywood. Hell yeah. When are you going to Dollywood? That's amazing. In about a week. Have you been oh, before? Man. No, never. Wow. Yeah. I got to well, keep it on the down low. Be there. I, I got to yeah. keep it quiet because Dolly has a crush on me. And if she <laughs> no, finds no. out I'm there, yeah. the, they'll have to shut the whole party. It'll, it'll be ugly. It'll ruin it for everybody. <laughs> well... Well, Does if you it, see our drummer, tell him hi. Oh, I will. Yeah, know, he he loves he loves Dollywood. Dollywood. Yeah. He goes all the time. He he's all about Dollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. You have a fantastic time, Mike. All right, thank you. Thank you. I'll be back in a sec after with a couple of new records. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Okay, we're back. For this part of the show, I'm joined by Jenny Bully, Mojo's Reviews Editor, and we're going to talk about two new releases that we both like a lot. So, Jenny, what record have you brought in for us today? Hi, John. Uh, with me today, I've got a Logte Oho, and he is from uh, the north of Ghana, and his album is called Oh Yine, and this is a fra-fra gospel record, at least that's the condensed version. Um, in actual, Frafra is refers to the sort of northern regions of Ghana, or there are pockets of it all over Ghana. But Frafra gospel, as it suggests, is the music sung in church. And um, Ologte was a gospel singer from the age of thirteen there. And Frafra gospel takes a lot of its rhythms from reggae. It's not it's not like gospel that you would recognise in an American context. Um, and he had some self release records in. Ghana and then he had a terrible motorcycle accident and while he was recovering he wrote this song which is you know a lot of the songs are obviously hymns gospel tradition and this particular song really was about you know being grateful for staying alive basically after the motorcycle crash 
it became a big hit in Ghana and it was heard by uh, this American chap called Max uh, Weissenfeld, who is a producer and a percussionist. And he had gone to Ghana and he was looking for the guy who'd made this record and he found Alokte and he recorded him and they released an album together, which is also called... Oh, you know. No, oh, no, it's, it's called... Oh, um, oh sorry, that, this is the second one, isn't it? I'm that's sorry. right. So yeah. uh, that, that song that was the big hit is called Mam Yine Wa and uh, Max Weissenfeld recorded an album also of that title and since then they've been working together and this is their second record together and it's called Oh Yine. Um, and it's excellent. Isn't it's it? really it's, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's um, I I should say we've had um, or I've had quite a good way of cribbing up on all this because David Hutchin, who writes a lot about African music for Mojo, um, did a little interview with Logte Oho um, for the next issue, which will be out any day now. And and so I, I've learned quite a lot more about the differences between Northern Ghanaian music and Southern Ghanaian music than I think it's fair to say I knew before we embarked on this. But as far as I can understand it, Alogte Oho used to make a lot of the music himself as a, as basically a solo endeavour. That's right. But but this record actually is credited to Alogte Oho and his Sounds of Joy, which seems to be some kind of hybrid Ghanaian German band. But prior to that. He he um he he never played with a band before, as far as I could tell. No, that in that in David's interview, they're both at pains to point out that the the sort of musicians from the south of Ghana, where there is a more kind of high life tradition, as we might recognise yeah. it, never really get together with the musicians from the right. north or, or the fra fra musicians. So the sound that Max and Ologte make together is properly unique, you know. And but to us, it sounds like just a mashup of a load of good things it's really funky there's reggae rhythms there's a load of percussion there's really great kind of harmony let's play a track for a start yeah what we're gonna i think the one we want to play is called this is bolga this is bolga yeah which is exclamation mark exclamation mark yeah it has that that sort of big band thrust that the best kind of afrobeat kind of records have but it has that kind of high life dimension as well like you can't really hear the reggae influence so much on this one but it's kind of a punchy kind of jazz funk thing almost yeah there's a lot of brass yeah. a lot of funk um i presume it refer- the title refers to bulgatana which is which is where he's based yeah yeah that's um, right yeah this is bulga by alokte oho and his sounds of joy written by alokte oho and released on the Philophon label we want to say about that before we move on to something quite different well i mean there's quite a there's lot a to lot, say about yeah. this record there's so much going on on it i mean that song as we've just said is very uh kind of polyrhythmic yeah. there's a lot of funk and jazz going on but all over the record there are there's a more reggae vibe on some of the tracks my favorite being Yineti uh, yellow which is a more kind of vibey percussive reggae based track um and there are bits where I think Max 
Weissenfeld being a percussionist brings a sort of contemporary jazzy feel. Like there's a song called uh, A Lemnime, which really reminds me of like um, Tendalonius or something, you know, that kind yeah, of dance yeah. floor orientated modern jazz. Um, yeah, it's just brilliant. Yeah, he's got good. an interesting Very background exciting. as well, hasn't he? Because didn't he play on that uh, Dr. John record that Dan Auerbach produced that's, Yes, as well? I believe so. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I mean, you can tell all over the place that he's a percussionist, that the percussion is immaculate and varied and always to the fore. Yeah, I think one thing that's important about it all is it doesn't sound like a strained hybrid at all. It all sounds very organic and natural. Yeah. It doesn't sound like someone is imposing a bunch of ideas on an African musician. It all feels like no. it works in, in a very sort of uh, um, serendipitous way, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think Logte writes the songs and then they're transcribed by right. Max. So the, you know, it's not like he's just bolting on some Western stuff. Yeah. Let's move on. It's something quite different now. The record I've chosen this week is one that maybe we should have featured a couple of weeks ago as it's been out since the end of May. Although, in fairness, perhaps one of the reasons we haven't talked about it before is that Andrew, our regular host, actually wrote the sleeve notes for it. So maybe he was a bit <laughs> self-conscious about doing that. Anyway, it's the self-titled album by two British guitarists called Jim Geddy and Toby Hay. And I'm just going to read a bit of Andrew's spiel, to be honest, because there's no way I can describe this record any better myself. Jim plays six string, Toby plays 12 string. We should have got Andrew to dub this in, shouldn't we? We should have got like a kind of audio book version of Andrew coming in here. Anyway, so um, Jim plays six string, Toby plays 12 string, but the sound they make is of a third entirely new and otherworldly instrument. Vast, burnished, delicate, intricate, utterly unique. So quite good, really. Uh, it, I suppose ostensibly it's... Yeah, I suppose ostensibly it's a British folk record and some of the songs on it are traditional and it is released by Topic Records, you know, traditionally the home mm. of traditional British folk music. But it feels like it it transcends tradition a little bit, that it reaches somewhere else, that it's, it's a very pretty, sort of unforced, um, quite moving in some subtle ways record, which, uh, which may be straightforward trad records don't always hit those spots yeah I, I agree it's absolutely exquisite and it do you know in a funny way it reminded me of that um the harp hookup that the welsh harpist catherine finch makes with um Seku Keita, that's, yeah. which obviously two very different stringed instruments but just the way they merge together and it's so sort of you know it's exquisite but it's kind of super dexterous but also really hypnotic and ambient so there's a sort of contrast between fast and slow going on that's really great and also i think in common with that record i think that's really interesting um <laughs> is that it feels quite salon music as well it feels it feels quite chamber music even though and i know that makes it sound um rather sterile and formal and it's not like that at all but it but there's a there's a clarity and a precision even on some of the more improvised things that feels very very measured and and mm. and a little bit more elevated i suppose that's the kind of quasi ambient yes. thing rather than earthy as such yeah but this isn't it yeah this isn't it and that and i don't think that this record's useful musical function certainly for me at least is 
is to kind of connect us with the soil of our forebears or whatever. <laughs> no, it's definitely head music. Yeah, let's play a bit. Um, track I was going to choose is the first one, actually. Um, it's called Bright Edge Deep. And it's, I, I guess it's just a really good introduction to the record in that it has that kind of unforced... I keep using the word prettiness about it, and I know that sounds quite. It's not. It's not a very. It's not a very authentic word, is it? It's not the sort of. A, no, but it's it's very delicate. Yeah. It's very, you know, it's beautiful. And also quite exciting at the same time. The way just the cascading of notes on yeah. this track, from the twelve string and the six string in this kind of uh, interwoven. De- I'm going to use your word dexterousness as well. Mm. Is is brilliant actually. It's a great. It, it's it's just quite a rush. Uh, Bright Edge Deep by Jim Geddy and Toby Hay from the album Jim Geddy and Toby Hay, written by Jim Geddy and Toby Hay on Toppy Records. bit more from Andrew's notes actually he mentions John Renborn and Bert Jancher's um, duo records and I think that's quite a good measure but and, uh, and also I suppose they're two musicians who did transcend their folk roots at the same time while as honouring them I guess that's that that's one of the tricks of this sort of music isn't it to to be able to be yeah. to respect and be immersed in those traditions while at the same time finding a way out of the predictability that sometimes that mm. can produce Definitely. The the song that I that sprung to my mind was the or the last one, which is called something like Galfinir, which is the Welsh word for curlew. Gilfinir. Yeah, we, I think there's a way to why yeah, I've got it here. So it, I don't know. Okay. Um, I, I think we're, we're probably better off sorry, on northern. Sorry, Toby. Yeah, we're probably better off on northern Ghanaian pronunciations <laughs> at this point than Welsh. But um, yeah, it's spelled G Y L F I N I R. So maybe Gilfinir. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, but it yeah, means curlew, and curlews, as we know, are like superstars in the folkloric world. But that track particularly was written, you know, f- far from being. It's got a very modern uh, element to it in that it, it, it was written about a painter that Toby Hay knew called Keith Howe, who sadly died before they could finish a collaboration they were doing together, which was a sort of responsive thing where this guy would paint birds, curlews in this case, and Toby would respond with music. And this is his response to a painting of a curlew. And uh, I was looking into it and apparently he's done other projects like this with, with like a blacksmith where they're they will sculpt and he will make music that responds to the, those bits of art. So it's a very, um, it's a very modern way of kind of plying that trade. And a lot of this music, Avocet, that's the Bert Jench. It wasn't a curlew, yes, it was an Avocet. Right. That's what yeah, I was thinking. That's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I looked that up. I'm sorry. Um, I, didn't, I didn't pluck <laughs> that from, uh, from my uh, ornithological memory banks. But yeah, no, the, a lot of the record was... Um, it was formulated by tragedy and by experiences mm-hmm. of lockdown and the pandemic and bereavement and that kind of thing. It's um, 
It's a very moving record. When uh, I think it, it's nice having records with sleeve notes. I mean, not just because Andrew wrote them, but <laughs> but some sometimes, especially with instrumental music, it's really useful to be able to articulate. To uh, it, it's nice to be able yeah. to listen to music and get uh, read into what. Obviously, it's all subjective, and you you bring your own mm. emotions and your responses to it. But sometimes it's uh, it's interesting to unpick the motivations behind it as well with that when they're not lyrically yeah. explicit and and that kind of thing and i think that when when you read the backstory to this record it adds a lot of um, necessary emotional heft and also means that yeah, perhaps uh, me keeping saying pretty about it is perhaps a little <laughs> bit um, trite but but it's a, it's a lovely record in in a bunch it of ways and record. i've been playing it a lot actually it's a good first thing in the morning record as well so yeah that's uh, like the curly like the curly exactly and on that bombshell maybe <laughs> we should, uh, maybe we should uh, withdraw from the reed banks and put our binoculars away <laughs> thanks so much jenny okay. i think thank we're you done. you have been listening to patterson hood mike cooley jenny bully and myself john mulvey look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we've played and how to sign up for the next episode And I promise Andrew will be back for the next one. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. Y'all have a great day.